Part Two of The Case of the Registered Letter by Augusta Groner. Translated by Colburn Grace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Case of the Registered Letter. Part Two. After leaving the prison, Muller took the train for the village of Grunau, about half an hour distant from the city. He found his way easily to Graumann's home, an attractive old house set in a large garden amid groups of beautiful old trees. When he sent up his card to Miss Graumann, the old lady tripped downstairs in a flutter of excitement. "'Did you see him?' she asked. "'You have been to the prison? What do you think? How does he seem?' "'He seems calm to-day,' replied Muller although the confinement and the anxiety are evidently wearing on him. "'And you heard his story, and you believe him innocent?' "'I am inclined to do so. But there is more yet for me to investigate in this matter. It is certainly not as simple as the police here seem to believe. May I speak to your ward, Miss Rermer? She is at home now?' "'Yes, Laura is at home. If you will wait here a moment, I will send her in.' Buehler paced up and down the large sunny room, casting a glance over the handsome old pieces of furniture and the family portraits on the wall. It was evidently the home of generations of well-to-do, well-bred people, the narrow circle of whose life was made rich by congenial duties and a comfortable feeling of their standing in the community. While he was studying one of the portraits more carefully, he became aware that there was someone in the room. He turned and saw a tall, blonde girl standing by the door. She had entered so softly that even Muller's quick ear had not heard the opening of the door. "'Do you wish to speak to me?' she said, coming down into the room. "'I am Eleonora Rimmer.' Her face, which could be called handsome in its even regularity of feature and delicate skin, was very pale now, and around her eyes were dark rings that spoke of sleepless nights. Grief and mental shock were preying upon this girl's mind. She is not the one to make a confidant of those around her, thought Muller to himself. Then he added aloud, If it does not distress you too much to talk about this sad affair, I will be very grateful if you will answer a few questions. I will tell you whatever I can," said the girl, in the same low, even tone in which she had first spoken. Miss Graumann tells me that you have come from Vienna to take up this case. It is only natural that we should want to give you every assistance in our power. What is your opinion about it? was Muller's next remark, made rather suddenly after a moment's pause. The directness of the question seemed to shake the girl out of her enforced calm. A slow flush mounted into her pale cheeks, and then died away, again leaving them whiter than before. "'I do not know—oh, I, I do not know what to believe.' "'But you do not think Mr. Graumann capable of such a crime, do you?' "'Not of the robbery, of course not. That would be absurd.' But has it been clearly proven that there is a robbery? Might it not have been—might they not have—you mean, might they not have quarrelled? Of course there is that possibility, 
and that is why I wanted to speak to you. You are the one person who could possibly throw light on this subject. Was there any other reason beyond the dead man's past that would render your guardian unwilling to have you marry him? Again the slow flush mounted to Eleonora Rimmer's cheeks, and her head drooped. I fear it may be painful for you to answer this, said Muller gently, and yet I must insist on it in the interest of justice. He, my guardian, wished to marry me himself, the girl's words came slowly and painfully. Muller drew in his breath so sharply that it was almost like a whistle. He did not tell me that. It might make a difference. That, that is what I fear, said the girl, her eyes looking keenly into those of the man who sat opposite. And then it was his revolver. Then you do believe him guilty. It would be horrible, horrible, and yet I do not know what to think. There was silence in the room for a moment. Miss Rimmer's head drooped again, and her hands twisted nervously in her lap. Muller's brain was very busy with this new phase of the problem. Finally he spoke. Let us dismiss this side of the question, and talk of another phase of it, a phase of which it is necessary for me to know something. You would naturally be the person nearest the dead man, the one, the only one, perhaps, to whom he had given his confidence. Do you know of any enemies he might have had in the city? No, I do not know of any enemies, or even of any friends he had there. When the terrible thing happened that clouded his past, when he had regained his freedom, after his term of imprisonment, there was no one left whom he cared to see again. He does not seem to have borne any malice towards the banker who accused him of the theft. The evidence was so strong against him that he felt the suspicion was justified. But there was hatred in his heart for one man, for the justice who sentenced him, Justice Schmidt, who is now Attorney General in blank. The man who in the name of the state will conduct this case? asked Muller quickly. Yes, I believe it is so. Is it not an irony that this man, the only one whom John really hated, should be the one to avenge him now? Mm, yes. But did you know of any friends in blank? No, none at all. No friends whom he might have made while he was in America, and then met again in Germany? No, he never spoke of any such to me. He told me that he made few friends. He did not seek them, for he was afraid they might find out what had happened, and turn from him. He was morbidly sensitive, and could not bear the disappointment. Why did he return to Germany? He was lonely and wanted to come home again. He had made money in America. John was very clever and highly educated, but his heart longed for his own tongue and his own people. Muller took a folded piece of paper from his pocket. Do you know this handwriting? Miss Rimmer read the few lines hastily, and her voice trembled as she said, this is John's handwriting. I know it well. This is the letter that was found on the table? Yes, this letter appears to be the last he had written in life. 
do you know to whom it could have been written? The envelope, as I suppose you know from the newspaper reports, was not addressed. Do you know of any friends with whom he could have been on terms of sufficient intimacy to write such a letter? Do you know what these plans for the future could have been? It would certainly be natural that he should have spoken to you first about them." "'No, I cannot understand this letter at all,' replied the girl. "'I have thought of it frequently these terrible days. I have wondered why it was that if he had friends in the city he did not speak to me of them. He repeatedly told me that he had no friends there at all, that his life should begin anew after we were married. And did he have any particular plans, in a business way, perhaps? No, he had a comfortable little income, and need have no fear for the future. John was, of course, too young a man to settle down and do nothing, but the only definite plans he had made were that we should travel a little at first, and then he would look about him for a congenial occupation. I always thought it likely he would resume a law practice somewhere. I cannot understand in the slightest what the plans are to which the letter referred. And do you think, from what you know of his state of mind when you saw him last, that he would be likely so soon to be planning pleasures like this? No, no, indeed. John was terribly crushed when my guardian insisted on breaking off our engagement. Until my twenty-fourth birthday I am still bound to do as my guardian says, you know. John's life and early misfortune made him, as I have already said, morbidly sensitive, and the thought that it would be a bar to anything we might plan in the future had rendered him so depressed that and it was not the least of my anxieties and my troubles, that I feared, I feared anything might happen. You feared he might take his own life, do you mean? Yes, yes, that is what I feared. But is it not terrible to think that he should have died this way, by the hand of a murderer? Hmm, and you cannot remember any possible friend he may have found, some schoolboy friend of his youth, perhaps, with whom he had again struck up an acquaintance. Oh, no, no, I am positive of that. John could not bear to hear the names, even, of the people he had known before his misfortune. Still, I do remember his once having spoken of a man, a German he had met in Chicago, and rather taken a fancy to, and who had also returned to Germany. Could this possibly have been the man to whom the letter is addressed? No, no, this friend of John's was not married. I remember his saying that, and he lived in Germany somewhere. Let me think. Yes, in Frankfurt on Main. And do you remember the man's name? No, I cannot, I am sorry to say. John only mentioned it once. It was only by a great effort that I could remember the incident at all. And has it not struck you as rather peculiar that this friend, the one to whom the cordial letter was addressed, did not come forward and make his identity known? Blank is a city, it is true, but it is not a very large city, 
and any man being on terms of intimate acquaintance with one who was murdered would be apt to come forward in the hope of throwing some light on the mystery. Why, yes, I had not thought of that. It is peculiar, is it not? But some people are so foolishly afraid of having anything to do with the police, you know. That is very true, Miss Rimmer. Still, it is a queer incident, and something that I must look into." "'What do you believe?' asked the girl tensely. "'I am not in a position to say as yet. When I am, I will come to you and tell you.' "'Then you do not think that my guardian killed John, that there was a quarrel between the men?' "'There is, of course, a possibility that it may have been so. You know your guardian better than I do, naturally. Our knowledge of a man's character is often a far better guide than any circumstantial evidence. My guardian is a man of the greatest uprightness of character, but he can be very hard and pitiless sometimes, and he has a violent temper which his weak heart has forced him to keep in control of late years. All this speaks for the possibility that there may have been a quarrel ending in the fatal shot. But what I want to know from you is this. Do you think it possible that, this having happened, Albert Graumann would not have been the first to confess his unpremeditated crime? Is not this the most likely thing for a man of his character to do? Would he so stubbornly deny it if it had happened? The girl started. I had not thought of that. Why, why, of course he might have killed John in a moment of temper, but he was never a man to conceal a fault. He is as pitiless towards his own weakness as towards that of others. You are right. Oh, you must be right. Oh, if you could take this awful fear from my heart, even my grief for John would be easier to bear then. Muller rose from his chair. I think I can promise you that this load will be lifted from your heart, Miss Rimmer. Then you believe that it was just a case of murder for robbery, for the money? And John had some valuable jewelry, I know that. I do not know yet, replied Muller slowly, but I will find out. I generally do. Oh, to think that I should have done that poor man such an injustice! It is terrible, terrible! This house has been ghastly these days. His poor aunt knows that he is innocent. She could never believe otherwise. She has felt the hideous suspicion in my mind. It has made her suffering worse. Will they ever forgive me? Her joy, if I can free her nephew, will make her forget everything. Go to her now, Miss Brimmer. Comfort her with the assurance that you also believe him to be innocent. I must hasten back to Blank and go on with this quest." The girl stood at the doorway, shaded by the overhanging branches of two great trees, looking down the street after the slight figure of the detective. Oh, it is all easier to hear, hard as it is, easier now that this horrible suspicion has gone from my mind. Why did I not think of that before?" Alone in the corner of the smoking compartment in the train to blank, 
Muller arranged in his mind the facts he had already gathered. He had questioned the servants of John Sider's former household, had found that the dead man received very few letters, only an occasional business communication from his bank. Of the few others, the servants knew nothing except that he had always thrown the envelopes carelessly in the waste-paper basket, and had never seemed to have any correspondence which he cared to conceal. No friend from elsewhere had ever visited him in Grunau, and he had made few friends there except the Graumann family. The facts of the case, as he knew them now, were such as to make it extremely doubtful that Graumann was the murderer. Muller himself had been inclined to believe in the possibility of a quarrel between the two men, particularly when he had heard that Graumann himself was in love with his handsome ward. But the second thought that came to him then, impelled by the unerring instinct that so often guided him to the truth, was the assurance that in a case of this kind, in a case of a quarrel terminating fatally, a man like Albert Graumann would be the very first to give himself up to the police and to tell the facts of the case. Albert Graumann was a man of honor and unimpeachable integrity. Such a man would not persist in a foolish denial of the deed which he had committed in a moment of temper. There would be nothing to gain from it, and his own conscience would be his severest judge. The disorder in the room, thought Muller, it'll be too late for that now. I suppose they have rearranged the place. I can only go by what the local detectives have seen by the police reports. But I do not understand this extreme disorder. There is no reason why there should be a struggle when the robber was armed with a pistol. If Siders was supposed to have been interrupted when writing a letter, interrupted by a thief come with intent to steal, a thief armed with a revolver, the sight of this weapon alone would be sufficient to ensure his not moving from his seat. I can understand the open drawers and cupboard. That is explained by the thief's hasty search for booty. But the torn window-curtain and the overturned chairs are peculiar. Of course, there is always a possibility that the thief might have entered one room while Siders was in the other, that the latter might have surprised the robber in his search for money or valuables, and that there might have been a hand-to-hand -hand struggle before the intruder could pull out his revolver. Oh, if I could only have seen the body! This is working under terrific difficulties. The marks of a hand-to-hand -hand struggle would have been very plain on the clothes and on the person of the murdered man. But this letter? I do not understand this letter at all. It is the dead man's handwriting, that we know. But why did not the friend to whom it was addressed come forward and make himself known? As far as I can learn from the police reports in blank, there was no personal interest shown, no personal inquiries made about the dead man. There was only the natural excitement that a murder would create. Now a family, expecting to make a pleasure excursion with a friend in a day or two, and suddenly hearing that this friend had been found murdered in his lodgings, 
would be inclined to take some little personal interest in the matter. These people must have been in town and at home, for the excursion spoken of in the letter was to occur two days after the murder. Miss Rimmer's remark about the dread that some people have as to any connection with the police is true to a limited extent only. It is true only of the ignorant mind, not of a man presumably well-to-do and properly educated. I do not understand why the man to whom this letter was addressed has not made himself known. The only explanation is that there was no such man. A sudden sharp whistle broke from the detective's lips. I must examine the dead man's personal effects, his baggage, his papers. There may be something there. His queer letter to Graumann, his desire that the latter's visit should be kept secret, a visit which apparently had no cause at all, except to get Graumann to the house, to get him to the house in a way that he should be seen coming, but should not be seen going away. What does this mean? Graumann was the only person against whom Siders had an active cause of quarrel for the moment. There was one other man whom he hated, and this other man was the prosecuting attorney who would conduct any case of murder that came up in the town of Blank. Now John Siders is found murdered, is found killed in his lodgings the morning after he has arranged things so that his antagonist, his rival in love, Albert Graumann, shall come under suspicion of having murdered him. What evidence have we that this man did not commit suicide? We have the evidence of the disorder in the room, a disorder that could have been made just as well by the man himself before he ended his own life. We have the evidence of a letter to some unknown, making plans for pleasure during the next days and speaking of further plans, presumably concerning business for the future. In a town the size of Blank, where everyone must have read of the murder, no one has come forward claiming to be the friend for whom this letter was written. Until this unknown makes himself known, the letter, as an evidence, points rather to premeditated suicide than to the contrary. Oh, if I could only have seen the body! They tell me the pistol was found some little distance from the body. Is it at all likely that a murderer would go away, leaving such evidence behind him? If Graumann had killed Siders in a hasty quarrel, he might possibly, in his excitement, have left his revolver. But I have already disposed of this possibility. A man of sufficient brains to so carefully plan his suicide as to conceal every trace of it and cast suspicion upon the man who had made him unhappy, such a one would be quite clever enough to throw the pistol far away from his body and to leave no traces of powder on his coat or any such other evidence. If I were to say now what I think, I would say that John Siders deliberately took his own life, and planned it in such a way as to cast suspicion upon Albert Graumann. But that would indeed be a terrible revenge, and I must have some tangible proof of it before any court will accept my belief. 
this proof must be hidden somewhere. The thing for me to do is to find it. The evidence gathered at the time of the death went to show that Siders had been paid a considerable sum in cash for the sale of his property at Grunau, and there was no trace of his having deposited this sum in any bank in blank or in Grunau, in both of which places he had deposited other securities. Therefore the money had presumably been in his room at the time of his death. A search had been made for this money in every possible place of concealment among the dead man's belongings, and it had not been found. Muller asked the police commissioner to give him the key to the rooms, which were still officially closed, and also the keys to the dead man's pieces of baggage. Commissioner Lange seemed to think all this extra search quite unnecessary, as it did not occur to him that anything else was to be looked for except the money. It was quite late when Muller began his examination of the dead man's effects. He was struck by the fact that there was scarcely a bit of paper to be found anywhere, no letters, no business papers, except bank books showing the amount of his securities in the bank in blank and in Grunau and giving facts about some investments in Chicago. There was nothing of more recent date, and no personal correspondence whatever. The same was true of the pockets of the suit Siders had been wearing at the time of his death. A man of any property or position at all in the world gathers about him so much of this kind of material that its absence shows premeditation. The suit Siders had been wearing when he was killed was lying on the table in the room. It was a plain gray business suit of good cut and material. The body had been prepared for burial in a beseeming suit of black. Muller made a careful examination of the clothes, and found only what the police reports showed him had already been found by the examination made by the local authorities. Upon a second careful examination, however, he found that in one of the vest pockets there was a little extra pocket, like a change pocket, and in it he found a crumpled piece of paper. He took it out, smoothed, and read it. It was a post-office receipt for a registered letter. The date was still clear, but the name of the person to whom the letter had been addressed was illegible. The creases of the paper and a certain dampness, as if it had been inadvertently touched by a wet finger, had smeared the writing. But the letter had been sent the day before the death of John Siders, and it had been registered from the main post office in blank. This was sufficient for Muller. Then he turned to the desk. Here also there was nothing that could help him, but a sudden thought came to him and he took up the blotting-pad. This, to his delight, was in the form of a book with a handsome embroidered cover. It looked comparatively new, and was, as Muller surmised, a gift from Miss Rimmer to her betrothed. But few of the pages had been used, and on two of them a closely written letter had been blotted several times, showing that there had been several sheets of the letter. 
Muller held it up to the looking-glass, but the repeated blotting had blurred the writing to such an extent that it was impossible to decipher any but a few disconnected words which gave no clue. On a page further along on the blotter, however, he saw what appeared to be the impression of an address. He held it up to the glass and gave a whistle of delight. The words could be plainly deciphered here. Mr. Leo Pernberg, Frankfurt am Main, Mainz-Landstrasse. And above the name was a smear, which, after a little study, could be deciphered as the written word registered. With this page of the blotter carefully tucked away in his pocket-book, Muller hurried to the post-office, arriving just at closing hour. He made himself known at once to the postmaster, and asked to be shown the records of registered letters sent on a certain date. Here he found scheduled a letter addressed to Mr. Leo Pernberg, Frankfurt am Main, sent by John Siders, blank, Josef Street, 7. Muller then hastened to the telegraph office and dispatched a lengthy telegram to the postal authorities in Frankfurt am Main. When the answer came to him next morning, he packed his grip and took the first express train, leaving blank. He first made a short visit, however, to Albert Graumann's cell in the prison. Muller was much too kind-hearted not to relieve the anxiety of this man, to whom such mental strain might easily prove fatal. He told Graumann that he was going in search of evidence which might throw light on the death of Siders, and comforted the prisoner with the assurance that he, Muller, believed Graumann innocent, and believed also that within a day or two he would return to blank with proofs that his belief was the right one. Three days later Muller returned to Grunau, and went at once to the Graumann home. It was quite late when he arrived, but he had already notified Miss Rimmer by telegram as to his coming, with a request that she should be ready to see him. He found her waiting for him, pale and anxious-eyed, when he arrived. "'I have been to Frankfurt am Main,' he said, "'and I have seen Mr. Pernberg.' "'Yes, yes, that is the name. Now I remember,' interrupted the girl eagerly. "'That is the name of John's friend there.' I have seen Mr. Pernberg, and he gave me this letter. Muller laid a thick envelope on the girl's lap. She looked down at it, her eyes widening as if she had seen a ghost. That, that is John's writing, she exclaimed in a hoarse whisper. Where did it come from? Pernberg gave it to me. The day before his death, John Siders sent him this letter requesting that Pernberg forward it to you before a certain date. When I explained the circumstances to Mr. Pernberg, he gave me the letter at once. I feel that this paper holds the clue to the mystery. Will you open it? With trembling hands, the girl tore open the envelope. It enclosed still another sealed envelope, without an address but there was a sheet of paper around this letter, on which was written the following. My beloved Eleanor, before you read what I have to say to you here, I want you to promise me, in memory of our love, and by your hope of future salvation, 
that you will do what I ask you to do. I ask you to give the enclosed letter, although it is addressed to you, to the judge who will preside at the trial against Grauman. The letter is written to you, and will be given back to you. For you, the beloved of my soul, you are the only human being with whom I can still communicate, to whom I can still express my wishes. But you must not give the letter to the judge until you have assured yourself that the prosecuting attorney insists upon Graumann's guilt. In case he is acquitted, which I do not think probable, then open this letter in the presence of Graumann himself and one or two witnesses. For I wish Graumann, who is innocent, to be able to prove his innocence. You will know by this time that I have determined to end my life by my own hand. Forgive me, beloved. I cannot live on without you, without the honor of which I was robbed so unjustly. God bless you. One who will love you even beyond the grave, remember your promise. It was given to the dead. John. Oh, what does it all mean? asked Eleonora, dropping the letter in her lap. It is as I thought, replied Muller. John Siders took his own life, but made every arrangement to have suspicion fall upon Graumann. But why? Oh, oh, why? It was a terrible revenge. But perhaps, perhaps it was just retribution. Graumann would not understand that Siders could have been suspected of and imprisoned for a theft he had not committed. He must know now that it is quite possible for a man to be in danger of sentence of death even for a crime of which he is innocent. Oh, my God, it is terrible! The girl's head fell across her folded arms on the table. Deep, shuddering sobs shook her frame. Muller waited quietly until the first shock had passed. Finally her sobs died away, and she raised her head again. "'What am I to do?' she asked. "'You must open this letter to-morrow, in the presence of the police commissioner and Graumann.' "'But this promise, this promise that he asks of me, that I should wait until the trial?' You have not given this promise. Would you take it upon yourself to endanger your guardian's life still more? Every further day spent in his prison in this anxiety might be fatal. But this promise, the promise demanded of me by the man to whom I had given my love, is it not my duty to keep it? Muller rose from his chair. His slight figure seemed to grow taller, and the gentleness in his voice gave way to a commanding tone of firm decision. Our duty is to the living, not to the dead. The dead have no right to drag down others after them. Believe me, Miss Rimmer, the purpose that was in your betrothed's mind when he ended his own life has been fulfilled. Albert Graumann now knows what are the feelings of a man who bears the prison stigma unjustly. He will never again judge his fellow men as harshly as he has done until now. His soul has been purged in these terrible days. Have you the right to endanger his life needlessly? 
Oh, I do not know, I do not know what to do. I have no choice, said Muller firmly. It is my duty to make known the fact to the police commissioner that there is such a letter in existence. The police commissioner will then have to follow his duty in demanding the letter from you. Mr. Penberg, Sider's friend, saw this argument at once. Although he also had a letter from the dead man, asking him to send the enclosure to you, registered, on a certain date, he knew that it was his duty to give all the papers to the authorities. Would it not be better for you to give them up of your own free will? Muller took a step nearer the girl and whispered, and would it not be a noble revenge on your part? You would be indeed returning good for evil. Eleonora clasped her hands, and her lips moved as if in silent prayer. Then she rose slowly and held out the letter to Muller. Do what you will with them, she said. My strength is at an end. The next day, in the presence of Commissioner Lang and of the accused Albert Graumann, Muller opened the letter which he had received from Miss Rimmer and read it aloud. The girl herself, by her own request, was not present. Both Muller and Graumann understood that the strain of this message from the dead would be too much for her to bear. This was the letter. Blank, September 21st my beloved when you put this letter in the hands of the judge i will have found in death the peace that i could never find on earth there was no chance of happiness for me since i have realized that i love you that you love me and that i must give you up if i am to remain what i have always been in spite of everything a man of honor albert graumann would keep his word this i know Wherever you might follow me as my wife, there his will would have been before us, blasting my reputation, blackening the flame which you were to bear. I could not have endured it. My soul was sick of all this secrecy, sick at the injustice of mankind. In spite of worldly success, my life was cold and barren in the strange land to which I had fled my home called to me and i came back to it i kissed the earth of my own country and i wept at my mother's grave i was happy again under the skies which had domed above my childhood for i am an honest man beloved and i always have been one day i sat at table beside the man the judge who condemned me here in blank in those terrible days he naturally did not know me again. I myself brought the conversation around to a professional subject. I asked him if it were not possible that circumstantial evidence could lie. If the entire past, the reputation of the accused would not be a factor in his favor. The judge denied it. It was his opinion, beyond a doubt, that circumstantial evidence was sufficient to convict anyone. My soul rose within me. This infallibility, this legal arrogance, aroused my blood. That man should have a lesson, I said to myself. But I had forgotten it all, all my anger, all my hatred and bitterness, when I met you. 
I dare not trust myself to think of you too much, now that everything is arranged for the one last step. It takes all my control to keep my decision unwavering while I sit here and tell you how much your love, your great tenderness, your sweet trust in me, meant to me. Let me talk, rather, of Albert Graumann. I will forgive him for believing in my guilt, but I cannot forgive him that he, the man of cultivation and mental grasp, could not believe it possible for a convicted thief to have repented and to have lived an honest life after the atonement of his crime. I still cannot believe that this was Graumann's opinion. I am forced to think that it was an excuse only on his part, an excuse to keep us apart, an excuse to keep you for himself. You are lost to me now. There is nothing more in life for me. If the injustice of mankind has stained my honor beyond repair, has robbed me of every chance of happiness at any time and in any place, then I die easily, beloved, for there is little charm in such a life as would be mine after this. But I do not wish to die quite in vain. There are two men who have touched my life, who need the lesson my death can teach them. These men are Albert Graumann and the prosecuting attorney, Gustav Schmidt, the man who once condemned me so cruelly. His present position would make him the representative of the state in a murder trial and I know his opinions too well not to foresee that he would declare Graumann guilty because of the circumstantial evidence which will be against him. My letter, given to the presiding judge after the attorney has made his speech, will cause him humiliation, will ruin his brilliant arguments, and cast ridicule upon him. Do not think me hard or revengeful. I do not hate anyone now that death is so near. But is it inhuman that I should want to teach these two men a lesson, a lesson which they need, believe me, and it is such a slight compensation for the torture these last eight years have been to me? And now I will explain in detail all the circumstances. I have arranged that Albert Graumann shall come to me on the evening of September 23rd between 7 and 8 o'clock. I asked him to do so by letter, asking him also to keep the fact of his visit to me a secret. Tonight, the 22nd of September, I received his answer promising that he would come. Therefore I can look upon everything that is to happen as having already happened for now there need be no further change in my plans. I will send this letter this evening to my friend Penberg in Frankfurt am Main. In case anything should happen that would render impossible for me to carry out my plans, I will send Penberg another letter asking him not to carry out the instructions of the first. I can now proceed to tell you what will happen here tomorrow evening, the 23rd of September. Albert Graumann will come to me, unknown to his family or friends, as I have asked him to come. I will so arrange it that the old servant will see him come in, but will not see him go out. My landlady will not be 
in my way, for she has already told me that she will spend the night of the twenty-third with her mother in another part of the city. It is to be a birthday celebration, I believe, so that I can be certain her plans will not be changed. Graumann and I will be alone, therefore, with no reliable witnesses near. I will keep him there for a little while, with commonplace conversation, for I have nothing to say to him. If he moves near the desk, I will upset the ink-bottle. The spots on his clothes will be another evidence against him. I will endeavor to get him to keep my jewelry, which is, as you know, of considerable value. I will tell him that I am going away for a while, and ask him to take charge of it for me. I myself will take him down to the door and let him out, when I have satisfied myself that the old servant is in bed, or at least at the back of the house. The revolver which shall end my misery is Graumann's property. I took it from its place without his knowledge. The ten thousand gulden which I told my landlady were still in the house, and which would therefore be thought missing after my death, I have deposited in a bank in Frankfurt, in your name. Here is the certificate of deposit. I will endeavor not to hold the revolver sufficiently close to have the powder burn my clothes, and I will exert every effort of mind and body to throw it far from me after I have fired the fatal shot. I think that I will be able to do this, for I am a very good shot, and I have no fear of death. One thing more I will do, to turn aside all suspicion of suicide, I will write a letter to some person who does not exist, a letter which will make it appear as if I were in excellent humor and planning for the future. And now, good-bye to life. People have called me eccentric. They may be right. This last deed of mine at least is out of the ordinary. No one will say now that I ended my life in a moment of darkened mind, in a rush of despair. My brain is perfectly clear. My heart beats calmly, now that I have arranged everything for my departure from this world of falsehood and unreality. My last deed shall be to prove to the world how little actual apparent facts can be trusted. The one thing real, the one thing true in all this world of falsehood was your love and your trust. I thank you for it. Theodore Bellman, known as John Siders. Joseph Muller refuses to take any particular credit for this case. The letter would have come in time to prevent Grauman's conviction without his assistance, he says. The only person whose gratitude he has a right to is prosecuting attorney Gustav Schmidt. He managed to have the police commissioner in blank read the letter in detail to the attorney. But Müller himself knows that it failed of its effect, so far as that dignitary was concerned, for nothing but open ridicule could ever convince a man of such decided opinions that he is not the one infallible person in the world. But Albert Graumann had learned his lesson and he told Müller himself that the few days of life which might remain to him were a gift to him from the detective. 
he felt that his weak heart would not have stood the strain and the disgrace of an open trial, even if that trial ended in acquittal. Two months later he was found dead in his bed, a calm smile on his lips. Before he died he had learned that it was the undaunted courage of his timid little old aunt that had brought Muller to take charge of the case and to free her beloved nephew from the dreaded prison. And the last days that these two passed together were very happy. But, as aforesaid, Muller refuses to have this case included in the list of his successes. He did not change the ultimate result. He merely anticipated it, he says. End of Part 2 End of the Case of the Registered Letter